Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the Post Money Plan podcast. As always, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thoughts on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Okay, so I brought my friend George onto the show, and he has experience in the bond market. So I just wanted to bring him on to share a little bit about interest rates and bonds. Welcome to the show, George. Thanks for having me, Dallas. It's a pleasure to be here. In terms of the things that I wanted to cover, just to share a little bit of your experience and your background with bonds and interest rates, and then I wanted to talk about some of the economic impacts and get your perspective on that, and then determinants on interest rates and and then we could talk about forecasting the future and all that stuff. So sure. can you uh, share a little bit about your background and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah sure. sure. So I've been in the finance industry for the best part of 10 years now. I studied sciences and, and maths in college and quantitative finance in grad school. Ever since, in fact, prior to graduating in, in 2010, I, I had my first internship in uh, an investment bank in New York City. And, you know, ever since uh, graduating, I, I've been working in Wall Street type banks. So I spent a couple of years on a, in an investment bank and I've been working for just about five years in, in an investment management firm that focuses on investing in bonds for institutional clients. Did you know when you were in college that you would become part of this big behemoth system? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't categorize it as a big behemoth system, I, but maybe that's just me. I think, yeah, towards the end of my college career, I developed an interest in finance. You know, there's so many different aspects of finance and so many different career paths. And in particular, there was you know, a strong element of applying mathematical and problem-solving skills with the aim of getting superior investment returns that particularly caught my attention. So... That's really what drew me to finance. The thing that stuck out to me when learning about finance careers was that it seems like it's very difficult once you choose a track to start going down a different track. The branches of the trees spread out pretty wide. So once you start going down, I'm going to be a quant, for example, or I'm, I'm going to go into iBanking, or I'm going to go into equity research. There can be some overlap and some switching, but it does seem like you kind of get put into buckets. I think it depends to a large extent on how motivated the individual is. Certainly, you can get pigeonholed in these large organizations. The more time you spend in a particular silo, the more kind of specialized it gets and the more minutiae you have to know about and learn. And in that sense, yeah, you can get stuck in one particular role. But I think from what I've seen, at least, if you're if you're really motivated and put in the time and effort to learn about whichever part of the organization you want to end up in, it's certainly possible to make a transition. It's not easy. And again, I think you have to be motivated, but it's, it's certainly doable. So how did you find yourself going into bonds and learning about interest rates? You know, when I was studying quantitative finance, it covered more or less the spectrum of, uh, from a high level at least, of uh, uh, mathematical finance, from equities to interest rate products to derivatives, commodity-related products, etc. When you're applying to graduate-level jobs, 
you just send out a bunch of different, different applications to a bunch of different places. They typically have a very low acceptance rate, so you have to spread yourself pretty wide to increase your chance of landing something. And part of um, where I ended up was a function of where I got the offers, and it just so happens that every uh, job offer that I've got has been in, in fixed income. Um, <laughs> Do you think there's something a specific reason for that? Uh, no, it's it just just happened. Certainly, you know, more recently, I've developed a very strong fixed income background and profile. So I don't think I end up in another asset class anytime soon. But at the start, now there's there's a lot of luck involved, honestly, with applying to finance jobs. Okay, let's talk about interest rates then. What are the big impacts that interest rates are having in our daily world? How is it affecting me? <laughs> well, do you have any outstanding debts, loans, credit card, uh, <laughs> bills, student loans, car loan, mortgage? Anything that requires the consumer to pay an interest rate or you know, borrow money is affected by the prevailing interest rates in the market. For a large part, these are based to a greater or lesser extent on the rates that are set in the U.S. Treasury bond market and rates that are set by the Federal Reserve. Typically, banks and other lenders who provide consumer products price their interest rates off these so-called benchmark interest rates. Even mortgage lenders' 30-year mortgage rate is typically set off the 10-year Treasury bond rate. In short, interest rates affect absolutely everyone who has credit. So the big thing is if I want to buy a house and I want to take out a mortgage, that interest rate that I'm going to the bank for is directly related to what's being said in the market? Yeah. In a sense, it's a curious thing because the rate at which treasury bonds trade hands is it's not particularly obvious why it would have an effect on average consumers' mortgage rate. But especially since the treasury rate depends on a large number of factors, not all of which are domestic. For instance, there are large buyers of treasuries overseas, and all of these investors will have some say to a greater or lesser extent on the, the treasury rates. In turn, obviously, it has a knock-on effect on the mortgage rate. Just to take a step back, when I think about interest rates, I think of it kind of as the price of money, you know, like the cost to borrow or to rent it. It's kind of weird to think of it in those terms, but it really is like if you want to rent money, that's the price you have to pay for it. Absolutely. One of the very first concepts you learn about when you, you study corporate finance and in particular bonds and interest rates is the time value of money, what's referred to as the time value of money. Loosely speaking, a dollar today should be worth more than a dollar in 10 days' time or in one year's time. By how much the price of the dollar either today or in a year's time should differ is what they refer to as the time value of money. And uh, you know, one way to think about it is if you're able to invest your dollar today at a rate of, let's say, 1% for the next year without taking any risk, then the dollar in a year's time should be worth correspondingly less than your dollar today, with that sort of relationship being determined by the one-year interest rate that you're able to access. Typically, people think of treasury bonds as being risk-free, at least to domestic savers. 
And the concept there is that the U.S. government, as the issuer of the debt, has, let's say, the highest credit rating of any entity. Unless Moody's downgrades you. (laughs) It was S&P, by the way, I think. Uh, I got it wrong. So I was going to say about the time value of money, you have both the factor of inflation and then opportunity cost. Because if inflation is slowly devaluing the value of the dollar, in 10 years' time, its purchasing power is going to be lower. So a dollar today is worth more to me than a dollar in 10 years from now. Sure. That's the one side of it. The other side is, like you were saying, the opportunity cost of what I could be doing with that dollar over time. If I have a dollar today, I could be using that to invest and create new value so that it'd be worth more than a dollar 10 years from now. So then a dollar 10 years from now isn't going to be the same value to me today. Right. But just to make things a little bit more confusing, that one-year interest rate, the so-called opportunity cost, is also dependent on the prevailing interest rate and the investor's perception or fear of future inflation, because that will also affect their behavior. Like you say, if investors expect a whole lot of inflation, uh, let's say 3% of inflation over the next year, they're not going to want to invest in 1% yielding bonds because after you take inflation into account, you would have actually lost 2%. Yeah. You know what's crazy, though? We're at a point in time where interest rates were so high in the 80s. You know, like I I would talk to my grandma and Mm -hmm. she would say, oh, why don't you just put your money in a CD and you can get like 18%. (laughs) Like, Grandma, you can't do that. (laughs) It doesn't work that way anymore. (laughs) It's a different world. What makes it even more complicated is nominal rates versus real rates. That is so hard for a non-economist to grasp. Because it's just like, it's so ethereal to try to fathom what it means. Mm. Just because interest rates were 18% doesn't mean they were good. And just because mm. they're 2% now doesn't mean they're bad kind right. of thing. It's kind of hard to perceive it in reality. And the tricky thing, too, is that inflation, they measure it by CPI, but that's like yeah, yeah. very convoluted and it may not exactly apply to how you live your life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to jump out of order here on that note, especially uh, bond investors. The yield that they're willing to accept is based on their expectation of inflation. If so many people think inflation should rise, why is it that people are willing to accept such low rates right now as bond investors? Well, one reason is that, simply put, they don't expect it to rise as much as they have done in the past, meaning that inflation expectations currently are a lot lower than they have been historically. Part of that is driven by the fact that inflation over the past, let's say, two or three or four or five years has been very low relative to historical rates of inflation. And the rate that CPI has been coming out at has been lower than that 2% target rate that the Fed maintains or or that the Fed attempts to hit with their (laughs) target rate. So because of this kind of long string of low inflation prints, investors have dampened their future expectations of inflation. And then the other part of that is the overall outlook of various things like the global economic outlook and the domestic economic outlook and the outlook for, let's say, energy prices and the outlook for fiscal policy and 
monetary policy, all of these things affect you know, investors' expectations of inflation. And for the most part, they're not particularly strong. They haven't been particularly strong. In what world or what scenario would you accept negative interest rates on your bonds? I think consumers have a hard time accepting negative interest rates for good reason. But institutions would be more ready to accept negative interest rates if, if prevailing rates were negative due to the fact that it's very hard for them to withdraw millions or even billions of dollars in cash and to find a, a mattress big enough to stuff it under. <laughs> because that's the alternative, right, to accepting these negative interest rates if the prevailing bank rates are negative. Short of withdrawing your money and storing it physically, you can't avoid them. Or, you know, essentially shopping around and hoping that another institution will offer a non-negative interest rate. But in countries where rates have gone negative, they go negative for the majority of deposit-taking institutions. So what impact do you think that's having in Europe with all these countries that have negative sovereign rates? Well, because, you know, inflation has a knock-on effect for interest rates, I think you know, one of the reasons why these uh, deposit rates went negative is because they've seen very close to zero or, e or even negative inflation, meaning their purchasing power has gone up marginally. So if you net that against your negative rate of your negative deposit rate, your real rate of return, your subsequent purchasing power will not necessarily have gone down as much as the nominal rate implies. But I think Europe in general has seen, you know, in the past, let's say, five or ten years, has seen a, a very slow, sluggish rate of economic growth. And, you know, they've gone from one crisis to another without being able to resolve anything in a very permanent way. So the outlook for, let's say, economic growth and the future of the single currency and the future of the single market and all that other stuff has been put into question in several different crises. So... I guess it's hard for investors to be bullish on inflation. The thing that's so crazy to me, though, is that I think of negative interest rates as being extremely stimulative because it's disincentivizing you from sitting on cash and to be putting your money out there, putting it into investments, non-bond-related investments. Also, just from a, a borrowing perspective, what is stopping European investors from borrowing infinitely? Good question. Um, I guess... The other side of the equation is if they don't have anywhere to invest for some reason, then there won't be a, a demand to borrow. Which, See, which I don't get that. Keep the rate low. This is what's blowing my mind. Is there some restriction that's stopping people from well, borrowing? Well, let's say they didn't have somewhere to invest. If they borrow a whole bunch of money, then the question is, what are they going to do with it? Are they? You don't even uh, have to invest it. You just keep borrowing, and you only have to pay back less. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But, but then they have the problem of managing physical currency, which costs money to do. Yeah, to rent a vault, hire security, make sure it's fireproof and things like that. And then you, Sign you, me up. I will borrow as much as you will give me. <laughs> well, unfortunately, in the, in the United States, uh, rates are still positive and certainly consumer credit is very much in the positive territory. So uh, I wouldn't be able to offer you such an attractive <laughs> Like what? What is the credit check for someone in Europe with negative rates? Where you say, "Hmm, I don't know if you're going to be able to pay us back less in the future." <laughs> <laughs>
it is certainly an interesting situation. And, and in fact, in some places, the mortgage rate, granted it's not a fixed 30-year mortgage rate like is typical over here, but the mortgage rate that some consumers could get was actually negative as well. So like you said, actual consumers were experiencing negative interest rates for large, sizable loans. So what impact do you think that's going to have over time where you have this potential carry trade or just the fact on an individual level where people in Europe are experiencing negative rates and then places like the U.S., their positive rates, that's pretty different? Honestly, I, I don't see it as a way for the average consumer to arbitrage the negative interest rates by somehow sure. being able to take out big loans and, and pay back less in the future. Because like I said, you have this problem of storing physical money. And, and second of all, if you, obviously, if you try and invest it anywhere, you're going to experience negative returns on, on those investments. But I think negative rates, though, are in general seen as a symptom of a sick economy. There's something kind of structurally wrong with the economy that rates are negative and, and they're staying there and there's not that demand for borrowing that would increase rates. I would actually make a point, though, to what you're saying, that it, there's a cost to storing money in an asset-based currency, like in a non-fiat currency situation, you would actually be willing to pay for someone to protect your money. Like that's how the whole system got started. If people had gold and they didn't want to carry all the gold around with them, then they, they're willing to pay the, the goldsmith or whoever to hold on to their gold and give them a certificate for a while, right. which is effectively a negative interest rate. Right. And I guess one other point about Europe and the economy over there, I think in certain jurisdictions, there's also kind of a structural reason why there's a reluctance to, uh, to invest. And it could be due to the regulations of that particular country. For example, in, in France, there are very strict labor laws that prevent companies from wanting to hire more workers because once they hire a full-time employee, they become very hard to fire in the future if they need to. So companies are incentivized by these types of regulations, in a sense, regulatory straitjackets. So even if rates are very attractive, you don't want to expand and take on that additional business risk. Okay, so we, we kind of touched on this before, but in terms of how rates are affecting me, what's the difference between if rates are quote-unquote low, so we're saying that rates are low in the U.S. today, 2%, or for a mortgage it'd be sub-4% or whatever right now, versus what they were in the 80s. What's the difference to me? The difference for the average consumer, like you mentioned before, there would be more of an incentive to spend and consume and to incur debt in order to do so. I think the difference between the current period, though, and let's say pre-crisis periods where there was a lot more consumer debt but higher interest rates was that the regime of checking and verifying credit was a lot less stringent than it is now. So credit is cheaper for those who are, let's say, creditworthy. But I think that there's still less access to credit for less creditworthy entities, let's say smaller businesses or, or individuals with lower credit scores than there was pre-crisis. However, back to your original question, which was what the effect of low interest rates is on the average consumer compared to, let's say, a couple of decades ago when rates were a lot higher. One of the most important sort of things that a consumer looks at is the headline rate. However, there is this prevailing rate of inflation in the background almost that the consumer doesn't necessarily have at the forefront of their mind, but which they are experiencing, whether they like it or not. 
and they, they may month over month notice that their paycheck goes less far than it did the previous month. And nobody wants that. Indeed, no, nobody wants that. You know, you might see your, your grocery bill go up or the, the price of gas at the pump increase. I'm sure plenty of people are familiar with uh, this experience. So what do you think is more important in determining the rates? You could argue that it's a function of people's uncertainty in, in different risks within investment and the economy, whether it be inflation or investment return opportunities or war risk or default risk, all like all these things. Or do you think interest rates reflect people's perception of what investment return opportunities can be? I'm willing to pay 15% to borrow money if I know I can get 20% return on my money kind of thing. If you're talking about interest rates in the bond market rather than you know consumer interest rates. But they're all related. No, they're related, but the price of consumer credit depends on other factors as well. But if you're just talking about the prevailing interest rates in the bond market, I think these are set more by institutional investors than by your average consumer slash retailer. Whoa, whoa. Are you going to talk down mom and pop? No, I, I hate to do so, but <laughs> in the equity market, retail investors have a lot more sway, meaning that if your average uh, investor on the street has bad sentiment of a given company and they start selling it en masse, it'll affect the stock price quite readily. However, the bond market is more or less completely dominated by institutional investors, both because the institutional investors involved are, are so massive and because it's a lot less common for people to invest in or individuals to invest in single bonds, individual bonds, than it is for them to buy individual stocks. Retail investors tend to buy bond funds, which are managed by institutional investors. So the upshot of, of this is that prevailing market interest rates, the, the 10-year treasury bond rate and the average corporate bond rate are set by institutional investors. Well, you do have, on the one hand, the market, even if it's not mom and pop, but it's institutional investors, it still, I think, is the marketplace. You have the demand for borrowing, and then on the other hand, you have the supply for lending, and they have to pair with each other and find an equilibrium in the market. But you have the Fed, which we haven't really touched on, the Federal Reserve, which is determining the Fed funds rate, which is then impacting what banks can borrow at, and they lend between each other and those kind of things. Yeah, the Fed's the elephant in the room that we haven't really touched on yet, but their activities are obviously vastly important in the interest rate market. But I think to some extent they might be overstated. You know, just to backtrack a little bit, the Federal Reserve sets an effective or target interest rate banks can access for overnight. That really determines what the short-term rate of interest is for a lot of different products. And that, in turn, has a, a knock-on effect for rates further out the maturity spectrum. And it certainly has an effect on where longer maturity treasury bonds will be trading. However, where the Fed sets their target rate depends a lot on the prevailing economy. So the Federal Reserve tries to select a rate in order to achieve low unemployment and steady inflation of about 2%. So if economic conditions 
are out of balance and one of these targets is not being met, they're forced to either hike the rate or lower it, depending on whether they want to try and stimulate the economy or to kind of tighten things up a little bit. And in a sense, the economic data almost like ties their hand in what kind of decision they can make. That begs the question, does the tail wag the dog or does the dog wag the tail? I think there's there's a lot of wagging in <laughs> a circular wagging in this case. There's a lot of feedbacks and, and there's, there's no real definite source of deterministic cause in the financial markets like there is in the physical world, let's say. It just doesn't exist. I would actually argue that it probably does. It's just there's so many variables that they all differ at different points in time. So it's hard to figure it out how it's all working together. Right. But what I mean, though, by the kind of feedback is that whatever sort of knock on effects one particular action might have by, let's say, the chairman of the Fed or of governors, if they make a decision that affects the economy, then they're going to view next month's economic data and see that they need to take a, a different action or, you know, a larger action. And so in that sense, I, I don't think it is clear who wagged and who was wagged. <laughs> but with regard to economic uh, policies and different various schools of thought, I, I don't think there's one neat formula to describe the economy like there is for a lot of things in physics. So I think economic policy makers are really aiming at moving targets with incomplete information. And in some sense, they're just trying to do the best they can. You mean they haven't come up with a regression model and determined a factor model for figuring out what the economy is going to do? I mean, they can come up with the most sophisticated <laughs> model, the craziest mathematics, but it won't be any better than sticking your finger up in the air in, in most cases, I'm sure. And I, th I think it's funny that the people that set or they're in charge of setting the Fed funds rate, which is so important for our economy, you'd think that they would have reams and reams of proprietary data that no one else has access to. But in reality, I think they're looking at the same numbers everyone else is looking at, and they're doing the same economic analysis that goes on in any investor's office or in any bank. So they really, they don't have any particular special insight into the economy. That's um, what concerns me, actually. Because I buy so much into the merit of a free market, I think a free market is going to do a better job than any one participant. When you have everyone looking at the data and making decisions like what's worth risking, then they vote in the system and they buy or they sell, and right. that affects the price and the interest rates. But then when you have an institution, so in this case you have the Federal Reserve, which prints money, and then they get to determine what kind of target rate they want to set for the Fed funds rate, and then they go and buy and sell in the market, and they're just a board of very smart and educated economists, but they're only a handful of people. And that handful of people is determining the rates that impact the biggest economy in the world, which impacts the entire economy of the world, which is crazy to me because it, it seems very uh, like throwing it into the wind versus the free market. Some might say that letting the free market make all decisions uh, is throwing caution to the wind even uh, to an even greater extent. I think that free market is good at a lot of things, but it, it's also very fallible. And it, time and time again over the course of the history of financial markets. It's been shown to uh, Give me one to good example. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> In the last eight years. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's been shown to fail spectacularly. And that's because there's some behavior that's kind of ingrained in human nature, herd following and things like that, that uh, exacerbates these crashes and busts. Who knows what the best uh, mix of free market and technocrats pulling levers is optimal, but I think the system is certainly better than many others. And I'd also say that I think there's this sort of opinion amongst uh, some that the decisions made by the Fed are politically driven and you know, who knows, that they might be to some extent. But I get the impression from listening to Fed speeches and seeing the Fed's actions that to a, a large extent, their decisions are based solely on trying to hit their targets of low unemployment and that steady 2% inflation that they are uh, charged with doing. They only have a very limited number of levers to pull. They have the short rate and, and now they have forward guidance, which is them explaining, telegraphing what they plan to do in you know, subsequent meetings. And then they have quantitative easing, which is to a large part fairly new experiment. So they don't have a lot of means by which they can influence the economy. I personally would argue that Congress and, and legislative means have a much greater and longer lasting influence on, on the economy. Yeah, I, I would agree with that in terms of a country that creates a legal system that enables a breeding ground for businesses to flourish and prosper. I think that's one of the big things that's been a success of America, that companies have been able to grow because there's been an area where companies could flourish. Other places where either legislation has been much more harsh or businesses haven't been protected or whatever, that they haven't been able to grow and prosper in the same way that they have here. Right. I also think I'm not on your show to be a, like a, a Fed apologist or to defend the Fed or anything, but I think they do get an unfairly hard rap for a lot of their activities and past actions. And I think it is quite easy to blame them for certain things. But you know, like I was alluding to in, in my prior comment, they only have a limited means of control over the economy. And most things that are seen as problematics, for instance, the prevalence of low interest rates. It's not really their fault. You know, they've set their interest rates very low, and they've tried to be as stimulative, accommodating to the economy as they can. But that's in response to prevailing economic data, which shows that inflation is unexpectedly low. And although the, the unemployment rate is, is also very low, they haven't been able to achieve a sustained sort of rate of inflation that they're they're happy with. Um, Let me ask you that. You know, why do you think, why do they choose to have a target of 2%? Why is that necessary? A negative rate of inflation is, again, a, an unhealthy sign for an economy. But obviously, a high rate of inflation is also can be very problematic. People don't want to see the price of groceries rise by 15% in a month and watch the value of their savings dwindle day over day and week over week. So the economic powers that be have determined that 2% is a good number. It's not too high and it's not too low. Why shouldn't it, it be 0% though? Well, a positive rate of inflation means that you know the economy is growing, asset prices are increasing, people are seeing increases to their, their wages over time, and, and they have a, a propensity to spend. If prices were static for a long period of time, that would suggest economic stagnation to a certain degree. I would disagree, um, actually. 
One of the things that contributes to economic prosperity is predictability, because the more predictability mm -hmm. you have, the more people are willing to invest. Because if you know the outcome, you're willing to take on the endeavor. But, but, but the cause of zero inflation, what kind of a situation would cause there to be no inflation in the market? Not, not earning money. In... <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, all else equal in the economy, even if the Fed wasn't doing anything, what would cause there to be no change in price of, of consumer goods? So I'm not studied enough to know this for a fact, but I believe that if you look at historical prices over the last 2,000 years, in terms of like gold and stuff like that, prices mm. were very stable up until, I mean, depending on if an empire was crashing or not, but up mm. until we had all these central banks 100 years ago. So my question, the question I posed to you was, was more along the lines of what kind of economic conditions would we have to see at present not to experience any inflation. What would have to be going on in our economy right now? Let's say the Fed wasn't doing anything. Would it be a healthy economy that, that showed 0% inflation? And I would suspect not. Well, you know. so, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but one problem we have is measuring prosperity through asset prices. For example, if you think of commodities, as technology gets better, the price of commodities in an ideal scenario should go down because it should get easier to produce them and refine them and use them and whatever else. So the prices should actually go down. And when prices go down, that means you can buy more with what you have or you produce more. Right. But you're, you're forgetting the, the demand side of things as well. As consumers become more affluent, there'll be more demand for certain commodities. And similarly, as the population increases, you have more consumers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, I, I more agree with you on your demand side. More demand for food and energy and whatever else. Couple that with the growing prosperity in the world. You have more people moving from subsistence living into more middle-income societies. That will increase the demand for higher-value quantities. Whereas a peasant may have been used to eating basic staples, as they transition to like a more middle-class society where they're saving some money and they're able to spend more, they may want to consume more proteins. And so the price of things like hogs will increase. <laughs> That's an effect that they've seen in, in China, for, for example. The demand for pork has increased immeasurably and, and the price has moved accordingly. No, I, I agree with you. I'm just talking from the perspective of... You know, I, I, I agree the, with you that as a consumer, it would be nice to see you know prices falling. However, at least prevailing economic wisdom is that if you see prices dropping, that actually will make people, you know, average consumer more reluctant to spend because why buy a big ticket item like a washing machine or a car next month when in two months, if you wait two months' time, it might be even cheaper. But so think that about actually, that from a that, Christian perspective. I think that's actually a good thing. If people defer purchases to needs-based as opposed to wants-based. Sure. But uh, <laughs> from the perspective of the American economy, it would be disastrous because this happens to be a very consumer-driven economy. Well, only because um, it's so debt-based. Well, be that as it may, I think that's the reality of things. So, and, and the implication of that is that more people will be less willing to spend, so producers of things like cars and washing machines will 
see their sales drop and their revenues fall and they won't be able to pay all their workers and they'll start having to lay people off. And then what you, the knock-on effect of that is that people will see either you know they get fired or their wages will drop and you have less power to spend. So it becomes a vicious cycle, if you like, of deflation. And, that, and that's why inflation that's too low, certainly inflation that's negative, is a worrying sign for economists and for people watching the economy. So then let me bring it back to what you were talking about, how the Fed tries to pull the levers. The Fed has the authority to print U.S. dollars, and then they also decide their target Fed funds rate. And that rate, which you were referring to, is the rate which banks charge each other to lend reserves overnight so that they can settle their balances and have the money that they need. So if the Fed is buying and selling within the market to affect that rate, then they can manipulate what it's costing banks to loan to each other and borrow money. So if they want to stimulate the economy in depressed times, they can lower rates. And if they want to cool down the economy in euphoric times, they hike rates. I will say one thing, and I don't have all the facts with me, but I think it's a, a misconception that the Fed has been printing money in order to purchase assets. It's not the case that there's now trillions of more dollar bills floating around in circulation. The means by which they funded those asset purchases was by creating reserves at their deposit-taking arm, which banks could buy, essentially. I don't have all the details of that, but there's a, there is a subtle difference, and it's, it's kind of an interesting one as well. In this sort of more or less free market economy that we have, it does make sense to have people sort of highly qualified technocrats that are at least nominally politically independent to watch over the economy and preemptively pull some levers to either attempt to speed up or slow down the economy in the attempt to avoid these sort of boom and bust cycles. I think, you know, if you do study like a kind of a long-term history of economic booms and busts, the impact that they had on the economy has lessened since the introduction of the Fed and certainly since they've kind of solidified their thinking of what's the best way to react to certain circumstances. All right. I, I think we can cut things off there. All right. Well, well thank you much for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely appreciate you uh, sharing. All right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. Don't forget to check us out on the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play.